0: Do you get that sinking feeling in your stomach when you get the jury notification in the mail that your name has come up once again and you're going to be having to show up at the courthouse and appear for jury duty? Do you get that feeling in your stomach that you just wish you got a thousand things you would rather do and you can think of all of them and you're hoping that you'll be able to think of at least ten of them when the judge asks you if there's anything that should keep you from serving on jury duty? And you get that sinking feeling? I don't get that sinking feeling. I like jury duty. I look forward to jury duty. Unfortunately, my wife, who was only born in the States, and though she's an American citizen, she's lived here far a shorter period of time than I have. She's got called up for jury duty more times than I have. I've only been called up one time, and it wasn't even for a trial jury. It was for a grand jury, which is better than nothing. And from what I understand, the way a grand jury works is that uh, it's the grand jury that hears the case that the prosecution is going to bring against the uh, suggested defendant or the alleged defendant, and the grand jury hears all of that evidence, and then the grand jury determines if it warrants a trial jury, and then the grand jury, if they determine that, issue an indictment and call for a trial jury. So I showed up for my jury duty, and there's a room of about 40 or 50 people there, and my name was called as one of the first, I think they brought like 15 of us up there, Um, My name was called as one of the first 15, and I sat up there, and the judge went through this list of questions, and the prosecutor asked all these questions as to anything that might discourage me or keep me from serving on jury duty. And I was, I mean, I, I answered them all honestly, but I was glad that I had qualified. So I was among the 12 or 14 of us that made the jury selection, and I think I served for about six months, and we would have, the way it's arranged is that once a month they call a grand jury. And if you're on the grand jury, you show up the courthouse with the other jurors there. And if there's cases that need to be heard by the grand jury, the prosecution gives the evidence of that case and you make a decision. In that whole six months, I never got called once. I was on the grand jury. I was a grand juror. But not once did I get called up for jury duty. And I was looking forward to it. Every month, I was disappointed when I would get a call from the prosecutor's office and say, there's no cases to hear this month, so we'll let you know about next month. Six months in a row that happened. And I never got to hear a single case totally disappointed. Now it's probably going to be another 30 years before I'm called up to serve on jury duty again. And I look forward to it. And there is a lot of juries that I would love to have been a part of. Can you think of some? (laughs) You've seen some news coverage about a historic trial, the trial of the century this last weekend. And listen, folks, I would love to have been a juror on some of these juries that have let men go free and just to hear the evidence and be there for that. I would love that. There's another trial that I would love to have been a juror on, Peter and John's in Acts chapter 4. Now, fortunately, Luke, who is very detailed in the details that he gives us concerning what went on in Acts chapter 4 at this trial, he has painted for us a picture as if he were right inside the courtroom. He's given us all the details of what led up to this trial, the fact that Peter and John had healed that man at the beginning of Acts chapter 3, and then Peter had gone ahead and preached that sermon in which he boldly proclaimed the name of Christ, and then they're thrown into prison, and the reason they spend a night in prison is because Peter is proclaiming the name of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead in Jesus, and that infuriates these members of the Sanhedrin. So they throw them into jail, and Peter and John spend a night there, probably with the cripple whom they had healed at the beautiful gate of the temple at the beginning of chapter 3. The next day, they're brought out in front of the Sanhedrin, and here they stand before at least 71 pretty much hostile men who do not believe what they believe, and the question that they are asked is, in whose name or by what power have you done this miracle? They don't want to talk about resurrection. They don't want to mention the resurrection of the dead. They don't want to talk about Christ. But Peter takes the opportunity to give them the full gamut on both of them. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, that this man stands before you today, Peter says. And then Peter says, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead. And then he ends his sermon in chapter 4, verse 12 with that appeal to them to place their faith in Christ because there is salvation in no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And that ends Peter's sermon. So we have looked at in this trial so far the the issue at stake, which is the name of Christ. We have looked at the prosecution's questioning of Peter and we have looked at Peter's defense. Now we're going to go behind closed doors and we're going to look at the deliberation of the jury. What is it that happened after this trial scene? We're given all of the details beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. And I want you to notice five elements to it. The first one is the dilemma that they are in. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Now, they're in quite a dilemma. You have to keep in mind the scene that they're in and exactly how the situation that they're in should have struck fear into their hearts. They're standing before the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court. They have done a miracle. They are before all of these hostile men. They have been questioned. And these are the very men, Caiaphas and Annas, who themselves had seen to the crucifixion of Christ. They're the ones who pulled the levers of power. They're the ones who called the midnight jury and put Jesus on trial. Annas is the one who delivered him over to Caiaphas, who delivered him over to Pilate. These are the two men who themselves had pulled every lever of power they could to get rid of the Son of God. And now Peter and John are standing before them only a few months later. And if anything, they should be trembling in their shoes, and their knees should be knocking, and they should be unable to say anything. But what is it that they observe? Confidence. They observe the confidence and the boldness of these two men. Peter has not for one moment equivocated. Peter has not for one second capitulated. He has done none of that. What has Peter done? He stands up and says it like it is straightforward, respectfully, gracefully, articulately. And they observe his boldness. And they've pulled out all of the stops, everything at their disposal, to try and instill fear into their hearts. And they observe his boldness. They observe his confidence. You know what? It's the same same thing that they observed in the Lord Jesus. There's something else they see. They see that they are uneducated and untrained men. The word untrained there is idiotes in the Greek. Sound like an English word you might be familiar with? It doesn't have any of those negative uh, connotations of calling someone an idiot. It just simply means common. Uh, They're laymen. They haven't been schooled in rabbinic schools. They have not been taught by learned men of the Judeo-faith. They have not had the discipleship and the mentoring. They're not of priestly descent. They're not trained in the Old Testament Torah. It's just two fishermen. It's just two fishermen. Two Galilean fishermen standing in the highest court in the land. And they observe their confidence. And they also observe these men are untrained and they're unlearned. They're just common, everyday folk. Listen, that's the people that God uses. God uses the meanest of instruments. He's chosen to use not many noble and not many wise and not many wealthy and not many powerful, but He's chosen to use the foolish things of the world. So that's what God uses. Here are these men with their degrees with everything laid out in front of them. They are trained, they are discipled, they are the the uppity-ups of the Jewish society. And God chooses two little Galilean fishermen, and he does a miracle to bring them right into the middle of the highest court in the land and preach the gospel to them. And listen, folks, I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God uses the meanest of instruments. I'm glad that God chooses to use the useless. Because if he didn't, none of us would qualify. The only thing that qualifies most of us, if not all of us, for being used by God is the fact that we are useless, is the fact that God chooses to use the foolish things of the world. And they observe their confidence, and they also take note of the fact that these men have not been trained, and that clues them into something. These two guys have been with Jesus. That's what they observe. You remember what they said of Jesus? How does he speak like this, having never been taught? That's what the crowd said of him. How does he speak like this, and he's never been taught? Just like Jesus, these two men had never been raised or schooled in the rabbinic schools. Neither had Jesus. Yet Christ was able on more than one occasion to shut up his enemies. In Matthew chapter 22, it says that after they had come to Jesus with questions and he had refuted their logic and refuted their questioning, Matthew says from that point forward, no one dared question him at all anymore. Why? They knew what they were up against. And here they see in Peter and John the same things that they've seen in the Lord. An inability to argue against them. Their mouths have been shut. Just like Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, I'll give you utterance and wisdom which none of your enemies will be able to refute. And that's what Jesus does. Peter and John stand there. They give their message. He preaches the Word. And they notice boldness. They notice the same characteristics that they saw in Jesus when Jesus stood before these same men, unable to answer him a word. They notice something else. Look at verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. There's something else they notice there. It's the cripple. It's the cripple. He's standing with Peter and John. Now Peter and John have healed the man, and they've said, here's how we healed him. This is the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene in whose name salvation is offered to all men. And He is the only Savior. He is the only way. And He has proven this by rising from the dead. And the cripple is standing here as exhibit A, evidence that what Peter and John have said is absolutely true. They have not done it by their own power. And here they have the cripple standing with them. They observe Peter and John. They look at the cripple. What do you say to that? They don't have anything to say to that. They have no case, and they know it. And listen, I wonder if it got real quiet there that day. Peter and John could hear them grinding their teeth at them. They want, like everything in the world, to have something to pin on these guys, and they don't have it. They have nothing to say in reply. Silenced. The Sanhedrin is reliving their worst nightmare. They crucified one man who claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be God in human flesh, claimed to be the only Savior. Now they've got 12 men running around saying the same thing. And they're reliving it all over again, but now it's worse. Now, rather than 12 followers, he's got 5,000. This has got to aggravate them. So what do they do? Well, the second element is their deliberation. That's their dilemma. Their mouth has been stopped. They have nothing to say to this. So, verse 15 Says when they had ordered them to leave the council, they asked Peter, they asked John, and they asked this cripple to leave the council. And they shut the doors. They've got to come up with something to do with these men. They don't know what to do with them, but they have to confer on it. So verse 15 says they ordered them to leave the council and then they begin to confer with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? The fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. Listen to that confession. They review the facts. We've got a cripple who for 40 years has not been able to walk. Now he's able to walk. These two it has something to do with these two men. We cannot refute anything that they said. We have a, a man walking around who used to be crippled and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. It's evident to all. So evident that these men say we cannot deny it. Hot dog. Then they're going to do what? Accept it? No. Can't do that either, can we? Although they can't deny it, they're not willing to accept it. Why is that? You know why it is? This is the judgment. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. They will not accept the truth. Have they had all the evidence necessary? Sure they had. They had Christ in front of them. They saw His works. They heard His testimony. They saw His character. They put Him to death. He rose again. They paid the money to bribe the soldiers to cover the whole thing up. Now they have Peter and John standing before them. He's healed a cripple. He's preached the gospel. These men have been confronted with the same claims, the same evidence, a second time over. And you would think that they would say, you know what, enough is enough. We're convinced. But they don't do that. We cannot deny it, they said. But they will not accept it because men love darkness rather than light. Now, do miracles convert people? Do miracles soften the heart? Does God use them to do that? Do they have that power in and of themselves? Apparently not. Miracles don't soften the heart. Listen, man's heart is hard. Man's heart, apart from the sovereign grace of God, will not repent, will not trust Christ, and will not subject itself to Christ. And a miracle doesn't change that. These men saw the miracles of Christ. These men have seen the miracle of Peter and John, and they're still not convinced. Miracles will only serve to further harden an already hardening heart. And they will only serve to further the softening of an already softening heart. The miracle itself does not soften the heart. And the miracle itself does not convince and does not convert and does not bring somebody to faith in Christ. And we have a whole segment of our church in this country who thinks that what we need to do is get back to the miracle workings of the apostles in order to draw people to faith in Christ. And that's not how it works. Miracles don't do that. Miracles only serve to further harden Pharaoh's heart What was the difference between Pharaoh and Moses? Both of them saw the same signs. Both of them understood the same God. What was the difference? Paul says in Romans chapter 9, God has said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Therefore, Paul says, God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. What's the difference between the two men? The grace of God in the heart of Moses to soften it, and the judgment of God in the heart of Pharaoh to harden it. These men's hearts are hardened by a miracle. And they will not turn. They will not repent. And so what do they say? Verse 17. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer in this name. A man stands before them who is crippled. He's healed now. He can walk. And they treat him like he's a leper. They treat him like he's come down with the plague. We don't want this to spread any further. You don't want what to spread any further. You don't want any more cripples to be healed? You don't want any more grace to be shown? You don't want any more men who could not walk to all of a sudden be able to walk? Listen, I told you last week that these men would rather have that cripple sitting at the beautiful gate begging alms than have him walking in the name of Christ. And it's evidenced by what they just said right here. We don't want this to spread any further. So we're going to tell the men to preach or teach no longer in this name. That is their deliberation. Now I want to... Throw out something for food for thought for you before we move on to the third element in this scene. Liberal critics have a heyday with this passage. And they say, how is it that Luke knew what went on behind closed doors? I mean, they asked Peter and John, the cripple to leave. All that you have gathered here is the Sanhedrin. How did Luke know what they said and what they decided? And how did he put all that together? Is he just making this up? And if he's making this up, how do we have any confidence that he's not making up a whole bunch of other stuff in this book? So liberal critics have a field day with that. Let me point out a couple possibilities. One of them seems kind of obvious. It could be that Peter and John had at least a couple sympathizers on the court trial. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, both of those men could have been sitting on the Sanhedrin that day, quietly observing what went on, and then later on told the disciples what happened. There's a second possibility that I think is even more probable than that, that I just want to throw out to you. Is it possible that Saul of Tarsus was in the Sanhedrin, sitting on that jury, and heard Peter and John preach that day. Is that possible? Now, first you may say, that doesn't sound right. But let's step back and take a look at the big picture, shall we? We know there's one man on the council named Gamaliel. In Acts chapter 5, when Peter and John are brought back in, it's Gamaliel who says, look, if this movement is of God... Uh, It's going to prosper and you can't fight against it. If it's not of God, it's going to fall apart. So my advice to you is just to leave it alone. And the council that day takes Gamaliel's advice. Now in Acts chapter 22, I want to read to you Paul's words. He says in verse 3, "...I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city in Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today." I persecuted this way, speaking of the Christians, to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons as also the high priests and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem to be prisoners and to be punished. So we know from Paul that although he was born in Tarsus, he was raised in Jerusalem. He was educated by Gamaliel who was on the council at this time. The latest we can date the conversion of the Apostle Paul is A.D. 35. These events take place in A.D. 33. And just a couple chapters later, when Stephen is stoned, who's there? Saul of Tarsus, holding their coats in hearty agreement with them putting to Stephen to death. And we know that Saul of Tarsus led his entire persecution of the Christian church out of Jerusalem. He was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus to round up Christians when the Lord Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road. So what do we know? We know that if there was anybody qualified to sit on that council that day, it was Saul of Tarsus. Brilliant legal mind, second to none, trained by Gamaliel. We know that Gamaliel, his mentor, sat on the council that day. We know that Saul of Tarsus was in Jerusalem at that time. He was a Pharisee, and we know that he launched his entire persecution from there at that time. Is it possible that Saul of Tarsus sat on this jury trial at that time and heard Peter and John's testimony? Friends, not only is it possible, I venture to say it's probable. Do I know that Paul was there? I don't know that for sure, because the text doesn't say that. Is it possible? Yeah, I would go so far as to say it's probable that Saul of Tarsus, sat on that council and listened to these men preach Christ. And it just further served to harden his own heart. Because just a couple chapters later, within a year and a half, maybe two years at the outside, he would trust Christ. But in that period of time, he violently, violently persecuted the church. Ask yourself, who did Luke travel with? Paul. Traveled with Paul, didn't he? How did Luke get all these details of where that man sat? Of how old the man was? Because we find out down at the end of the passage that he was 40 years old. How do we know, how did Luke know what time the miracle occurred? Which of the two apostles did the miracles? How did Luke know what went on behind closed doors in that jury? Is it possible that Luke's eyewitness was none other than Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, later on? And that Paul told Luke, here's what happened that day. Write it out. And Luke did so. Now, that's speculation, folks. i let you know that. But it's food for thought. It's very possible. If Saul was there, it explains a whole lot of things about him, what was going on in his heart, where he was at, and why he so vehemently hated Christians. One other thing, we know Saul of Tarsus knew the high priest because he got letters from the high priest to persecute Christians. You don't just walk up to the high priest's door and knock on it and say, Hi, I'm Saul of Tarsus. Nice to meet you. I know we've never met before. I'd like some documents with your handwriting on them saying I have permission to go kill some people. You don't do that. Saul knew the high priest. He knew Annas. He knew Caiaphas. He was in with them. I think he was on this trial. Third element we see, not only the dilemma and the deliberation, but the third thing is their decision. Look at verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's all they've got. They're operating on their own authority. We don't want you to do this. We don't want you to teach anymore in this name. Now they know that Peter and John have violated no law. They have not drawn the people astray after a false god. They have not issued false prophecies. They have done nothing by which this council can legally act. And so all they do is issue this threat. We are commanding you to teach and to speak no longer in this name. Now that commandment, that decision does two things. First, it serves to threaten the apostles. The highest court in the land just told us we cannot teach or preach anymore. That would serve to instill some fear, or at least the council's hoping it will. The second thing it does is it serves to give the council a basis by which they can drag them in later on. And that's what they do. In Acts chapter 5, they haul Peter and John in before the council and they say, We told you not to speak anymore in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with this teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood on our heads. So it serves as a basis by which they can grab onto them later on and say, Here, you violated our, our decision. I want you to notice that the focus of their hatred is not on Peter and John. You notice that? It's all about what? The name. Remember, it's the name that they can't tolerate. If Peter and John were not believers, they wouldn't be facing this. That's the bottom line. If they weren't Christians, they wouldn't be facing this trial. If it weren't for the fact that they were apostles and had done this good deed, they would be out fishing or they'd be out doing whatever it is that they would normally be doing at that time of the day. But they're on trial for the name. And they hate Christ, and thus they hate the Father. This is what Jesus said in our Scripture reading. They've hated Me, and they hate the Father also. And because Peter and John bear His name, because they testify in His name and do everything in His name, they hate Peter and John. But it's not personal. Listen, when the world hates you, don't take it personally. So often we take it personally. And we begin to think, well... Is something that I've done, or they don't like me, or they don't like the way I dress, or they don't like me as a person. It has nothing to do with you. When the world hates you because of the name, it hates the name, and that's Christ. And it's only because you bear his name that the world hates you. And notice also that the council is able to discern the central message of Christian preaching, the name of Christ. Notice that? If they can keep them from proclaiming that name, they know that they have shut down the Christian movement. Because Christianity is not a feel-good, psychological pep pill. It's nothing like that. Christianity is all about the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. And if they can get the disciples to cut out that name, they know that they've cut out the heart of Christian doctrine, Christian worship, and Christian preaching. Because Christians are not called to preach or to teach feel-good messages, five things that will help you with your marriage, three ways to be successful in business, blah, 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 blah. We're called to preach Christ and Him crucified and the Word. And if they can cut out the name, they can cut out the heart of the movement. That's their decision. Notice number four, their defiance, Peter and John's defiance. Verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Peter and John are caught in a little bit of a dilemma. It's not a difficult dilemma to solve, but it's a dilemma nonetheless. They understand they have the responsibility to be submissive to authority. Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, to submit themselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, every created authority structure, whether to the king or as those sent by the king for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. They have that responsibility. But they also have a clear command from the Lord Jesus to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to all men and baptize them in his name. So now the dilemma is, do we obey these men and have peace, or do we disobey these men and obey God and suffer the consequences? Well, that's an easy decision to make if you have any guts whatsoever. It's an easy decision. You obey God rather than men. And notice how gracefully and with an attitude of grace Peter says it. If it is fitting or better in your sight for us to obey you rather than men, you be the judge. I want you to notice his attitude. It's very respectful. I think that Peter, if he could find some way to obey these men without disobeying the Lord, he would do it. He would because he, he knows he has a responsibility to submit to authority. And these men, although acting unjustly, are in a position of authority, and he has a responsibility to submit to that. And if he could obey them and still obey God, he would do so. But he can't. In order to obey God, he has to disobey them. So with a graceful, submissive, respectful attitude, he just says, is it right for us to disobey God and obey you? Now that puts the council in a dilemma. Look how many times the tables have turned in this trial. Now they're in a dilemma. We want the preaching to stop, but we can't honestly tell them it's better for them to obey us rather than God. So what's the council do? Now they're kind of on the horns of that dilemma. They don't know what to do with that. So Peter says, you be the judge, but we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Notice the early Christians had to be told to shut up. How different that is from Christians today who have to be commanded to speak. They had to command the early Christians to keep quiet. We don't want you talking about what you have seen and what you have heard. Man, you've got to light a fire under modern day Christians to get them to mention anything about Christ. How different it was in the early church. Peter says we can't stop speaking about these things. Now, this is an incident of an incidence of civil disobedience where Peter and John have to disobey men, authority, do so respectfully, and we've looked at their attitude. Now I want you to look at the issue. The issue is not building codes, the issue is not taxes, the issue is not some little tiny law that you might disagree with. The issue is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the clearly revealed will of God on a subject. That conflicts with what these men tell me. So they have to go with the clearly revealed will of God. That's when you civilly disobey. Not when the government violates some preference that you have, or some little hobby horse that you're picking up, or some cause that you want to champion. Those aren't causes for civil disobedience. When it is the gospel, when we are suffering... For righteousness' sake. And notice Peter and John are willing to bear the consequences of it. They know whom they have to obey, but they also know that consequences come with disobeying governing authorities, and they accept those gladly. Whether it's being beaten, whether it's being imprisoned, whether it's being killed, Peter and John and all the early Christians are willing to say, we have to obey God rather than men, and we're willing to take whatever consequences that brings, and we'll take them gracefully, and we will suffer without reviling or without threatening or without arguing back. We will take them. As a witness and a testimony. That's what Peter and John do. What does it mean to suffer for righteousness? And the suffering for righteousness is, it's suffering for his namesake. Because you have preached, because you have taught, because you have advanced, witnessed, testified, spoken of, and in some other way proclaimed the name Of Christ and advanced his kingdom suffering for righteousness is not suffering for a tax movement or standing in front of an abortion clinic or holding a sign suffering for righteousness is not having people look at you because you wear a GOP t-shirt suffering for righteousness is not any of those other pet causes if you want to suffer for those things fine suffer for those things but just don't think there's a reward for it suffering for righteousness is exactly what Peter and John does here it's the name and I will suffer for that name Everything else I'm willing to let go of, but the name I cannot, and that's where the reward is at. First Peter chapter two. If you do right and you suffer for it, God's well pleased. What is it to do right? Peter and John have done a good deed, they've proclaimed the truth, they have faithfully obeyed the Lord, and now they're suffering. That's suffering for righteousness. That's where the reward comes. That's where the blessing comes. and that's what Peter and John experience. Fifth thing I want you to notice is the deliverance. Verse 20. Peter says, We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. Verse 21, When they had threatened them further, they let them go. Uh, I don't know what they said to them. I would love to have been there to hear what they threatened them with. Did they threaten them with beatings? Further imprisonment? Another trial? Ostracization? Casting you out of the synagogue? Beat your wife? Take your dog? Steal your plants? I don't know what they threatened them with, but they just threatened them further. And then they let them go. And you would say, well, the council at least has this going for them. They're really committed to justice. No, they're not committed to justice. What are they committed to? Look at verse 21. Finding no fault, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Why did they let them go? Because they're committed to doing justice? No, they let them go because they feared the people. You see, for the Sanhedrin to punish these men is to lose faith with the people because there are over 5,000 men. And the whole church knows about this. And all of Jerusalem knows about this. The man is 40 years old. Everybody in the city knows he's never walked. Now he walks. The word has spread even overnight. And they know if we punish these two men, everybody else is going to be mad at us. They feared the people. But they can't just let them go either. Why not? Because that's to lose face. right? They know they've hauled them in there for no reason. They've had this whole trial for no reason. They've questioned them. They've kept them in jail for a night. They've got to do something to them, so they try and meet somewhere in the middle. We'll threaten them, and then we'll let them go. And so God delivers Peter and John, and he sets them go, lets them go. Listen, that's not always God's will to do that. Sometimes it's God's will to keep his servants in prison for years, as he has in communist countries and in places where Christians are persecuted. Sometimes it's God's will for his servants to meet their end in martyrdom, as has happened throughout church history, as happened with Peter and Paul and all the rest of the apostles. Sometimes that's God's will. Here, God's will is to let them go. And so they threatened them. And on account of the people, because they have no basis to judge the men, no basis to punish the men, they have to let them go. They're not going to get off so easy next time. Next time they get flogged. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. And then there's Stephen. And then Peter's put in jail again. And the persecution just grows more and more intense. But in the early stages, they just delivered them. Listen, if you're going to live as a faithful, obedient believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to run cross-grain with the world. You're going to run into your occasional Sanhedrin that hates you because they hate that name. And it may be your boss. It may be an unsaved spouse. It may be an unsaved child. It may be an employee. And they're going to hate you and they're going to make life miserable on you just because of the name. Just because Christ has chosen you out of the world, they hate you for that reason. Because you belong to Him. And because you bear that name. Listen, expect that. Expect it. And understand that that's what you're called to. That is God's calling on your life. He suffered himself, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And Peter says, you and I are called to suffer. Expect it, understand that you're called to it, and don't fear it. What can man do to you? Only what the Lord allows. What can these men have done to Peter and John? exactly what the Lord was going to allow them to do to Peter and John and no more. That's it. So what's to fear? If God is for us, who can be against us, right? Or as Martin Luther said, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Then in the fourth verse of that hymn, he says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What's to fear? What's to fear? God has put you in your place, in your family, and in your business, or in your workplace, for the purpose of taking his name there. How are you doing in that? You proclaiming his name? You standing for his name? You advancing in his name? Listen, the threats of the enemy are hollow. They're just threats, and they're hollow threats. And the enemy whispers to us and tells us, you better be careful, you might lose face. You better be careful. You might lose your job. You might lose your respect. So-and-so might hate you. If you keep talking like a Christian, everybody's going to think you're nuts. And although he doesn't threaten us with physical beatings and physical loss, he does threaten us in so many more insidious and subtle ways, and we buy the lie. And God has placed you where you're at to spread his name. And so be like Peter and say, I cannot stop talking about what I have seen and what I have heard. I must obey God and be his witness. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Thank you, Father, for the truth that we are convinced of. We know that the facts are on our side and on the side of your word. Christ was crucified, he rose again, and he has saved us and redeemed us. And we have a responsibility, we know, to proclaim that name and to take it to every corner of our world. And we pray that you, by your grace, would strengthen us to do that very thing. We pray that as a result of our time here today, that you would embolden us and give us the courage that we need to stand strong in the face of the enemy, to stand strong in the face of opposition, and to use opposition as an opportunity to advance your name, all for Christ's name's sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.